Hello, this is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. This month, we're finding out how neuroscience is infiltrating the military. We're going to be starting with a 2,300-year-old Greek honey trap. Pompey was invading, and the Greeks, they collected the honey and strewed it in the path of the oncoming troops, who ate it and were incapacitated Mm -hmm. and were then decapitated. Uh, So this was um, perhaps one of the earliest forms of chemical warfare. Plus, we'll be finding out how to tweak people's belief systems. The whole idea of brainwashing is really contested. Neuroscience is making some progress in understanding the kinds of changes that might take place in the brain when somebody is put in that kind of very stressful situation. We'll be hearing from a captain who served in Afghanistan. There is one smell that will stay with me for the rest of my life, and it's this mix of tar and diesel, and it stings the back of your throat. Sometimes if you're walking past like roadworks where there was bitumen boiling, it's that same acrid smell. And something like that would flick me back in an instant. Military life can sometimes leave mental scars, like post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Ty Carter, recipient of this year's Medal of Honor. Only those closest to me can see the scars that come from seeing good men take their last breath. During the battle, I lost some of the hearing in my left ear, but I will always hear the voice of Specialist Devin Mace. I will hear his plea for help for the rest of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, please, Take the time to learn about the invisible wounds of war. Know that a soldier or a veteran suffering from post-traumatic stress, know that they are not damaged. They are simply burdened with living when others did not. More than half of us were wounded, and almost everyone was left with a deep, invisible wounds to their hearts and to their minds. The condition is highly stigmatized, as President Barack Obama recently highlighted. As we honor Ty's courage on the battlefield, I want to recognize his courage in the other battle he has fought. His struggle with post-traumatic stress. The flashbacks, the nightmares, the anxiety, the heartache uh, that makes it sometimes almost impossible to get through a day. The pain of that day, I think Ty understands and we can only imagine, uh, may never fully go away. It is absolutely critical uh, for us to work with brave young men like Ty to put an end to any stigma that keeps more folks from seeking help. So let me say it as clearly as I can to any of our troops or veterans who are watching and struggling. Look at this man. Look at this soldier. Look at this warrior. He's as tough as they come. And if he can find the courage and the strength to not only seek help but also to speak out about it, to take care of himself and to stay strong, then so can you. So can you. Uh, And as you summon that strength, uh, our nation needs to keep summoning the commitment and the resources to make sure we're there when you reach out. Because nobody should ever suffer alone. And no one should ever die waiting for the mental health care that they need. That's unacceptable. I spoke with someone else who served in Afghanistan. My name is Captain Mark Lindhurst of the Coldstream Guards. And I was serving in Afghanistan for approximately seven months. The first five were relatively quiet, dealing with your usual explosions, shootings, 
about five months into us involved in an explosion, we drove over what we think was a Russian anti-tank mine, largely saved by the soft sand that was beneath it, and it blew a crater in the ground. And I walked away largely physically unhurt. Everyone else walked away with some broken bones. I came home and went back to Afghanistan after my, my leave, and um, I got immediately flown to a place called um, Nadi Ali, where I was on the last transport to actually make it in there in about seven weeks. <laughs> Just after I got in there, um, the Taliban surrounded us, cut off our position. Um, and then we proceeded for the next seven weeks to defend our position whilst the army was unable to come and rescue us. There was people running out of food, running out of ammunition, problems with water. We were under contact every day that we were there. Things got so bad at one point that the RAF refused to fly in because it was too great a risk to them. So they started dropping dropping all our supplies. We'd watch our supplies drift slowly towards the Taliban lines and then have to go out and fight for them. And all through this, as a young officer, your duty is to do what you're told from above and also to look after your soldiers. And that leaves you in the middle, being incredibly pressure and incredibly alone. Because when soldiers look at you and go, boss, why are we doing this? In some level, you've got to sympathise because you can't just tell them to shut up and get on with it because the situation is is ridiculous. But on the other level, you need to come up with an answer and come up with a reason that they follow you back out the gate next day, even though you know you're going to get shot at. Seven weeks of that. That's what left me my PTSD. It took just over a year before I was actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress over which period of time the, the post-traumatic stress built up, built up, built up until it got to a critical point in which it was eventually noticed. The predominant symptom is it's the obsessive thoughts, the continual rethinking of the situation. It's been a lot of therapy and just talking because a lot of the feelings that I was caught up in, again, largely to do with the army, that there is this sense of fear when these things, when these things happen. And that's something that you feel very particularly as a commander, you feel quite ashamed of because you think that you should be able to deal with things much better and you're, you know that your priority is to actually put that aside and carry on. You've also got a set of very high high standards to work to. But you go through and you do all this training back at home and you try and get everything as perfect as possible. But then the reality of it is when these things happen in war, the scenario isn't perfect. There are things you have to adapt to. And there are many, many, many limitations that you can't really reconcile. And so you're quite often left with this sort of overarching feeling of, I could have done better. The, the army lives in this wonderful alpha male type sort of world where it plays on, you know, machismo and ego. And those are the things that helps make it bold and strong and carry it through a lot of these, a lot of these times and particularly allows you to lead. But sometimes it, it captures you there and you forget about the other side of things, about emotion, about compassion, and the sort of the, the other parts that make up the human condition. And what kind of advice would you give anyone that's experiencing PTSD, whether they were in the military or otherwise? There's only really one thing, which is just, and it's the hardest thing to do. You need to talk to somebody. You need to tell somebody. So my story is, when I came back, it took me over a year to actually speak to anyone about things, and that was largely through being pretty much frog-marched to a doctor by some very close friends when it got to a point in time that it was beyond obvious that there was a problem. But you're very concerned and caught up in yourself to the point, actually, that quite often you don't really want to talk to other people about it. One, for fear that you're boring them because it's on your mind the whole time. And two, because you're often living in this world of fear or guilt or you're having problems reconciling your own thoughts. And they've usually become confused because you... 
you relive these moments and you relive them what you know the memory is an odd thing you're not really remembering actually what was going on and before you know it you've remembered it so many times that it's become a confusion and a fantasy you don't really feel justified in telling it to anyone because it's it's a very personal problem but if you don't it finds other ways to escape and people turn to alcohol to drugs the alcohol in particular although it, to a certain degree it quashes these thoughts it also provides a great a vehicle for them to to come alive and you to express them or at least the, the emotions or the anger the fear and everything to come out in my case it ended up with self-harm and suicide attempts so once i actually started talking to the therapists it was by no means a quick fix i was in and out of therapy on a number of occasions but there's a lot of denial and i was very lucky to have a close sort of support network of friends and family who sort of held my hand and kept me fighting can help me find the help i needed you know, you talk to a therapist and you work through the emotion and you rationalize the emotion as well to an extent. And you look at things and say, well, actually, uh, I was afraid. Is, is that OK? And the answer is, well, well, yes. I'm still by no means cured. And there's a lot of things that, that still affect me now, although possibly on the outside you wouldn't see them. One thing that happened when I was in Afghanistan was that I was blown up in a snatch Land Rover. So we're driving along through a desert and hit an anti-tank mine. Four of us in the vehicle three ended up being Kazavat Pats in the UK and um, I walked away with a small cut to my left shin um, which I was in command of the vehicle left me very much questioning what right I had to be alive and you know the next day I was out patrolling again so I hadn't had the time to actually sit down you know have a cup of tea and a fag and allow my mind and body to catch back up with each other when we still want to start doing my therapy there's a technique that was used called EMDR which is a lot of tapping and bits and bobs apparently it's very close to hypnosis and nobody seems to be able to understand or be able to explain exactly what it does. But it's very good at changing acute thought patterns. Now, a vehicle, when it gets blown up in the desert, there is one smell that will stay with me for the rest of my life. And it's this mix of tar and sand and diesel. And, and it's horrific. And it stings the back of your throat and stings the back of your nostrils. And it's something that I could never really get rid of. But sometimes if you're walking past like roadworks where there was bitumen boiling or tarmac boiling, it's that same acrid smell. And something like that would flick me back in an instant. But the MDR was something they used in particular to tackle that one situation because it was so acute. We talked about the bad situation and then there's this sort of tapping going on. And then we talked about good things. And as far as I understand what it does is it, it changes the neural pathway so that you're going, duh, 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 duh. you were going bitumen explosion, good God, I'm nearly dead. And instead you're going bitumen explosion, uh, it's a nice day. Thanks to Mark Lindhurst. And Mark talked about EDMR, so eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing. This is a treatment that was developed by clinical psychologist Dr Francine Shapiro in the 1980s. It involves making side-to-side eye movements and listening to taps whilst recalling the traumatic incident. It's thought that this left-right eye movement stimulates the brain in a similar way to REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep, when your eyes move rapidly from side to side. During this phase of sleep, memory reinforcement seems to happen, so it's in this way that EDMR could have changed how Mark reacted to cues in the environment and stopped his flashbacks. We've had some questions in from listeners on PTSD, including how ecstasy is also being used 
to treat patients. I visited Dr Amy Milton from Cambridge University. First up, Kay wrote in asking, do we know enough about the brain processes involved in PTSD to prevent it? And can the military use neuroscience to screen and allocate personnel? People who do go on to develop post-traumatic stress have some differences in their brains compared to those who don't develop PTSD. So, for example, they tend to have a smaller hippocampus. Now, that's the structure that allows a memory to have a distinct time and place. So that may mean that that trauma memory is not localised to a point in someone's past in a specific space and time, but that that fear then becomes generalised to all situations and it persists in a way that it doesn't for people who don't develop PTSD. We also know that areas like the amygdala, so that's an area that's really important for storing the effective value of environmental cues. So that would include fearful stimuli in the environment, fearful things. And there also seems to be some differences in the ability of the prefrontal cortex, which is an area that normally regulates all of this emotional emotional processing. There appear to be some difference in, in those who develop post-traumatic stress as well. The difficulty is that the bulk of this work has been done in human patients using structural brain imaging studies. But all of this, of course, happens post-trauma. So whether these differences existed before somebody was exposed to the traumatic event or whether they've developed afterwards is really difficult to disentangle. And what we don't have is a sort of a long-term screening study, for example, in a rodent model, where you could actually try to tease apart this correlation and know which way the causality runs. So in that case, we can't really, as Kay asks, we can't use neuroscience to screen and find out whether certain people might be more predisposed to experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder later on in life and therefore shouldn't maybe be at the front line. We're not in a position where we can do that on an individual basis yet. So we have risk factors, but they're very, very statistical. So for example, women are more likely to develop post-traumatic stress than men are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't let women into the army. I mean, you can make the same argument that you know, men are more likely to become addicted to alcohol than women, therefore we shouldn't allow men into pubs. So it's all very broad brush at the moment and there's no diagnostic screen. You, know, you couldn't scan someone's brain and say, based on the volume of these brain structures, how big these brain structures are, they shouldn't go on the front line. So we can't do that yet. And moving on to the next question, Kimberly has been in touch with this. How does MDMA affect the brain circuitry and memory in soldiers with PTSD during psychotherapy? Would dependency of MDMA be of concern given the short-term use? So MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy, is a very, very dirty drug, so it has a lot of different effects on the brain. A few of the things that it does is mainly to increase levels of particular chemicals, so dopamine, noradrenaline, serotonin and oxytocin. So these are all modulatory chemicals in the brain that influence um, cognitive function in a very sort of diffuse way. But certainly dopamine and oxytocin have been linked to feeling attached to people and euphoria and feeling good about yourself. MDMA used to treat post-traumatic stress, there has been some evidence that MDMA reduces the activity of the amygdala. So that might be why MDMA appears to be effective in conjunction with psychotherapy, which would ultimately reduce the activity of the amygdala. 
And that reduces that feeling of fear and anxiety. Yes, exactly. So the amygdala is really important. Um, it's important for a number of different emotional memories, but in the case of PTSD, for the storage of those fear memories. And Kimberly also asked, would dependency of MDMA be a concern given the short-term use for any military personnel or anyone that's suffering from PTSD? So that's a really good question. In the study, they used MDMA in conjunction with psychotherapy and they only gave three doses of MDMA. So that I would consider as being more like doctors giving morphine in hospital when somebody is in a lot of pain. And we know that people who are given morphine for pain in hospital don't tend to go out and seek heroin on the street. So you wouldn't necessarily expect people who've been given MDMA during psychiatric treatment to necessarily go out and seek it themselves. And anecdotally from that study, the authors comment that the patients really bought into the idea that it was enhancing the psychotherapy and wouldn't have thought of going and taking the drug in the absence of that psychotherapy. There's certainly no reason not to explore this as a potential therapeutic option. Thanks to Amy Milton. This month I'm discussing neuroscience and the military. Coming up in the show, the psychology of brainwashing, chemical warfare and how neuroscience could enhance soldiers' fortitude on the front line. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, and in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Next, we meet Professor Fran Ashcroft from Oxford University. She puts military neuroscience into historical context, describing the first documented chemical warfare committed by the Greeks some 2,300 years ago, disrupting ion channels in nerve cells and affecting how these cells send messages in the brain and the body. All sorts of chemicals can interact with ion channels. And there is one which is known as gryanotoxin, which is found in the, the pollen of a certain species of rhododendron, which is found on the Black Sea. Its effects are best described by Xenophon in 400 BC, when he explains how his soldiers ate of the honey that was made from the pollen of these rhododendrons and found themselves... Uh, with lots of diarrhoea and purging and vomiting and having convulsions. And, and he has this marvellous phrase that they all lay on the ground in a state of great dejection. Oh, gosh. And fortunately, they recovered. And nothing really much happened for another 200 years until Pompey was invading that area. And the Greeks remembered this story of Xenophon's and they collected the honey and strewed it in the path of the oncoming troops, who ate it and were incapacitated mm -hmm. and were then decapitated. Uh, so this was um, perhaps one of the earliest forms of chemical warfare. There's another coda to this story, really, mm -hmm. and that is that these days, of course, the rhododendrons are still there. The honey is still produced by the local bees. The honey's blended in with many other honeys, so it's the toxin is diluted out. But in that local area, you can actually get the, the honey that is made specifically from this particular species of rhododendron. And it has a local vogue as an aphrodisiac. Oh, wow. Uh, which is rather unfortunate. And there are even stories today of men who have taken some of this and ended up in hospital um, rather acutely ill. Fran Ashcroft. And over the last 2,000 years, many more chemical weapons have been developed, from tear and mustard gas, which was used during World War I, to the more recent civilian sarin attacks, including in Tokyo. 
I spoke to Dr. David Jett, director of the National Institute of Health Counteract Research Program in America. In the 95 attack, there was a terrorist organization called Am Shinrinkyo that released sarin nerve gas in the Tokyo subway. Thousands were exposed, resulted in many short and long-term, really debilitating effects and even 12 deaths. I think one of the most disturbing results of this attack, there are long-lasting neurological and other kinds of effects showing up even today in some of these victims. We're concerned about reducing some of the long-term kinds of effects. And there's been reports even in the last few months of gases being used in Syria um, on civilians. So how, how can you research into the type of thing that we can do to help protect people against such chemical warfare? Yeah, as it turns out, we have a couple of drugs that are used that work pretty well for these types of compounds. And we are developing more effective drugs that can save lives, prevent some of the seizures and paralysis caused by these compounds by blocking receptors within the body and so forth. There's been some reports that some of the physicians that treated folks in Syria themselves got sick and some even died because of some of the off-gassing from these victims. And so that's another concern. How are we going to decontaminate not only a site, but also some of the victims so that medical personnel can treat them. Scientists, if they are developing a chemical that's used as a pesticide, for example, and then it turns out that somebody starts using it in warfare to kill people, civilians, how much do you think science should be accountable for this type of thing? And is there anything that a research scientist should be aware of, should have to take some responsibility for? Yes, that's, that's an excellent question. And in fact, that's what happened with our organophosphorus nerve agents. And Gerhard Schrader was working on these as pesticides. And once they found out that they are very toxic to humans under the, uh, this is during World War II, under the German military, developed these into even more toxic nerve agents. And what we have in place, at least here in the U.S., is we have lots of policies under what we call dual-use research. When you are working on something like a very toxic chemical or a very potent biological agent that could be developed into some sort of chemical weapon, you have to be very, very careful about how you conduct that research and the kind of information you disseminate about that research. We've heard how neurochemicals can be used as weapons against the enemy. But can neuroscience be used to enhance the mental fortitude of soldiers and the fighting force on the ground? Professor Rod Flowers at Bart's Medical School, London, chaired a Royal Society steering committee looking into this. We identified some research, for example, which suggested it may be used to screen recruits to uh, identify those people who are better, for example, at reacting under stress or have a particular cognitive skill set, which at the moment has to be sort of teased out through quite intensive screening. We identified ways in which the cognitive performance of military personnel could be increased. And one example, of, one obvious example, I suppose, is the use of cognitive enhancing drugs. I mean, these have been used for many, many years, actually. Even pilots in the Korean War used to use amphetamines to prevent them from getting fatigued and keep them alert and awake. 
And of course, these days we have much more sophisticated agents uh, that enable you to do this. Uh, and it's not just that, but also having to have your troops sleep is actually a major problem in the field. And if you could discover drugs that can keep your troops awake for a bit longer, enable them to perform competently, then actually this is a, a major advantage to you. It might be possible to use EEG techniques um, on people who are observers, uh, for example, people who are looking at lots of satellite images, because it turns out that the brain often recognizes differences between photographs and images, even if these differences aren't, don't make conscious awareness, as it were, uh, picked up uh, by measuring what's called P-wave in the brain. You can use this technique actually to speed up recognition, for example, of changes in, in satellite photographs of, um, let's say, missile positions or something. I suppose the other thing I, I, I could add is there's some evidence now that direct brain stimulation techniques may be used to improve the speed of learning. And if you, you know, if you look on the web, then see, you know, you can build these things yourself from a nine volt battery and some wires and so so on. I'm not recommending that any of your listeners actually do that, but nonetheless, there have been some academic studies showing that brain stimulation uh, does improve learning. So those were sort of a handful of things that we found out that actually might improve the efficiency of armed forces. Thanks to Rod Flowers. What about using psychology findings to control the thoughts of the opposition? The word brainwashing was coined over 70 years ago. During the Korean War, American soldiers in Chinese prisoner of war camps came home communists, denouncing the American way of life, an apparent reversal of their beliefs. To find out about the science of brainwashing, I caught up with Dr. Kathleen Taylor from Oxford University. You know, the whole idea of brainwashing is really contested. This is not some kind of magical weird process. It's just the basic application of psychology and neuroscience only taken to very coercive extremes. Because it's that coercive, you don't get people doing brainwashing research, at least not in reputable institutions. So there, are, there is no field of, of brainwashing research. That's the first point. However, neuroscience is making some progress in understanding the kinds of changes that might take place in the brain when somebody is put in that kind of very stressful situation. So, for example, the U.S. military has done research looking at the effects of stress on the brain and looking at stress hormones and how they affect particularly prefrontal areas and because, I mean, the, the essence of a quote-unquote brainwashing situation is when somebody is very, very highly stressed. They're put under an awful lot of pressure, and that pressure might be emotional abuse, it might be lack of sleep, it might be forced to do repetitive behaviors, it might be isolation from all the things that they know, so they're kind of disoriented, and it might be that, that their input's controlled so that their entire reality is, is under somebody else's control. So all of that is going to change the brain. Of course it is. Everything changes the brain. But those allow the quote-unquote brainwasher to have much more control over what's actually going into the brain. And obviously what's going into the brain is to a certain extent determining what is being thought by the brain and what is coming out in the terms of actions and behaviors. So you see, for example, that in cults, the ones that exert the most bizarre control the ones that really seem to be able to make people do very extreme things are the ones that are very isolated and have a lot more control over the person's situation, whereas cults like, like the Moonies, that people operate in society, are much less extreme. What kind of implications are there for this type of brainwashing in the world of politics? 
I mean, there are loads, absolute loads. So, for example, it is possible that as people develop more understanding of how belief change happens in the brain, that they may want to use that in situations where you have people with beliefs that don't match yours. And that raises huge political and ethical questions. So, for example, you have the simple question of who decides whose beliefs are okay and whose beliefs aren't. And then you have the whole ethical thing about whether changing somebody's belief is actually like treating them for a mental illness or whether it's like doing something else. I mean, there are, there are really big questions about this. So the whole idea of beliefs in politics and whether they can be changed and specifically whether they can be changed artificially. I mean, people are really interested in working out how beliefs are based you know, how they're encoded in the brain. That's the first step to, to wanting to be able to change them. And, I mean, that's just one of the big issues that neuroscience is going to raise increasingly in the next years and decades. It's one of the biggest. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for this month. Thanks to Fran Ashcroft, David Jett, Rod Flowers, Kathleen Taylor, Mark Lindhurst, Ty Carter, Barack Obama and Amy Milton. If you have any comments or questions about this show, please contact Hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on the Naked Scientists Facebook page and you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. I'll be back again next month with a Christmas compilation covering the top neuroscience nuggets for 2013. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, and in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Mm-hmm.